Slippery, damp, greasy, sly, shady, deceitful. All words people use to describe salamanders. <laughs> I thought you were gonna you were gonna say Ben Marshall then. That's, that's <laughs> where you were going. I thought Mate. it was gonna be the switch around. <laughs> you need a little self-esteem boost, my friend. <laughs> no one calls you those things. <laughs> What's my face? Well, yeah, those are things people use to describe salamanders, but I don't think it's fair. Do you think it's fair, Ben? No, Tom, I don't. I think salamanders are great. <laughs> They're the heroes of the hummus layer. The delicious hummus layer. <laughs> I'm Tom Major. Welcome to episode 16 of Herpetological Highlights. And my co-host, as always, is Ben Marshall. And this episode 16, we're going to be talking about salamanders. Hmm. Ground newts. Yeah. What's the difference between a salamander and a newt? Oh, well, you've, you've, you've caught me off guard there. <laughs> Isn't, aren't all newt salamanders, but not all salamanders newts? Ah, right on. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Um, yeah, so salamanders are amphibians. They are generally terrestrial. Um, they kind of live under crevices on rocks and logs, and they go back to the water to lay their eggs and mate. Um yeah, they're just a bit more unusual. You don't really hear about salamanders. Uh, so we have newts in the UK, which are salamanders also. Well, just let me let me double check this because <laughs> it might be the other way around. I think it's. I think this is. I think that's the right way around. Okay. Well, you work that out, and then I'll just keep talking. Um, yeah. So our first paper we're going to talk about is about unisexual salamanders and how. They require, or do they require, sperm-donating species. So these are salamanders that don't really have a gender per se in the sort of traditional sense. And then the second one is about territorial behaviour and uh, a salamander which has multiple colour forms potentially diverting into multiple species over time and how potentially a polymorphic salamander can be a good model for that. To study that. And then finally, we've got our species of the bye week, which I won't ruin because it's a top secret. It's exciting. But it might be slimy. It might be slimy, yeah. That would be saying not too much. I think people would could. I think people will presume the sliminess. It's a new type of hagfish. Ugh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> They're fantastic, though. Don't knock them. I saw a PhD advertised looking at the biomechanics of hagfish slime. Yes, I saw that same one. <laughs> you could I be didn't a sli- apply. <laughs> you could have been a slimeologist. I believe the time term is slime monger. <laughs> Peddling your slime. In the, the picture, which, you know, every PhD project, they try and have like a picture which sells it to the pr- prospective students. Yeah, and, and get your kids. Yeah, the picture was a, a person just holding up a load of slime <laughs> it looked disgusting <laughs> well, oh, it's no just partners. a day in the life of a hagfish slimeologist <laughs> it's a damn shame no actually like apparently they're really interesting biomechanically the slimes I don't know whether it's extremely viscous or what it is but it's of interest 
you've, you've taken my off comment and gone on a whole tangent here. What does Let's a hagfish, back to what we were talking about. What does a hagfish look like? I couldn't, you know, I couldn't pick one out of a lineup, could you? Um, I feel like I could. It's Ooh. the one that would be tying itself in a knot and they're kind of pale and oh. probably the most slimy. They're monstrous. It's like an eel with loads of appendages on its face. It's like an eel crossed with one of those star-nosed moles. Star-nosed mole eel. Yeah, it's hideous. No. Ooh. Slimy sea mole. Yes. Yes. Slimy sea mole. Horrible. So anyway, back to the topic at hand. Here's a segue. Talking of moles and talking <laughs> of soul mal- salamanders. Mole salamanders. Right? Yeah. For the first oh. paper. Yeah? Yeah, see what we did there. Our first yeah. paper is about mole salamanders, which are salamanders of the genus Ambistoma. Mm. So shall I, shall I go for the first one? Yeah, man. So the first one is Bogart, Linton, and Sanderlands, 2017. A population in limbo. Unisexual salamanders, genus Ambistoma, decline without sperm-donating species. And this is from Herpetological Conservation and Biology, which I believe I'm correct in saying is open source. Um, yes, it is. And the Jefferson... <laughs> I just... I. I think it is. I'm 100%, I'm 100% sure. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, all about Jefferson salamanders. Uh, they are Ambistoma jeffersonianum, which is catchy. And they're named after the Jefferson College in Pennsylvania. Um, not mm. sure why. But, uh, yeah, it seems like this. their geographic range is quite hard to work out because they have this habit of just handing their sperm out willy-nilly to anyone who's asking. Um and don't they look really really similar to another species as well it's laterally ah the one they interbreed with yeah yes yes that's the Uh. one they're hard to distinguish from them and there's a whole complex between the two species that's what i was getting at right on yeah well well this is probably a good time to talk about the uh the salamander itself it's quite a um nondescript beast in many ways it's sort of gray but it has got hints of blue on the arms and kind of on its tail little spots the whole body is ribbed which is weird like it looks like you can see protruding ribs i'm not sure if that's what that is uh, and then it's got like a big blunt nose small black eyes and kind of a it looks like it's got jowls almost kind of these chubby neck bits <laughs> the chubby cheek salamander Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like I said, they, uh, the pure ones, which are hard to distinguish, are probably from Pennsylvania south to Kentucky. So we're talking about the United States of America here, um, which, by the way, is like the most rich place in the whole world for salamanders. It is. It's a salamander hotspot. I feel mm. like the rest of the world's been cheated out of their salamander quota. Yeah, and it seems unfair because these salamanders range really far northward as well into, you know, pretty temperate climates and even quite cold climates. And here in the UK, we only get a few different newts, although our newts are quite cool in fairness. We can't really complain about our newts. Mm. Um, But yeah, but like I mentioned, the Jeffersonianum genome, so like their genes, are widely distributed uh, in the east of North America, but most of them are in hybrids which we'll get onto, which is kind of the subject of this paper. They hybridize quite frequently. Um, and they're only little. They're sort of like between 10 and 20 centimeters long, but that includes the tail, so they're they're small. Compact salamander. 
Yeah, the little. Um, Urban living. Yeah. So, in contradiction to what I just said, they actually do occur in pencil in... To contradict what I just said, they do occur in Ontario, these pure Jeffersonianum. And uh, that's what that's what this study focuses on, is um, the populations in Ontario. And uh, the Ontario government actually has pretty good protection for these salamanders. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So there's a 300 metre radius around ponds that are known to be used by Jefferson salamanders. Um, and potential suitable breeding ponds within a kilometre of a pond that's known to be used by them is also protected. So any pond with a 300 metre radius around it and any other ponds within a kilometre are also protected. And this is the key bit for me. They have to also maintain a minimum 200 metre wide corridor between the ponds. Um, yes. That way the salamanders can travel because, you know, it's all well and good conserving a pond. If the salamander's got across three roads, a railway and crawl underneath a blooming Kentucky Fried Chicken, it's not going to get anywhere, is it? So it's good that they've got these nice corridors um, allowing them to kind of immigrate, emigrate and disperse as they wish. Yeah, it's an excellent little policy. I think that's something that a lot of places could learn from. This integrating connectivity into their conservation strategies, absolutely. Yeah, massively. Um, and I, I read in this paper as well that uh, the reason this study kind of took place was that um, two of the authors are actually environmental consultants and it was part of an environmental impact assessment for a housing development. They had to put all these um, pitfall traps in the ground around ponds to try and, you know, count salamanders. And it was uh, Jessica Linton and Al Sanderlands worked for consultancies and they decided to try and write it up into a paper, which is really cool. That is very cool. Yeah, I mean it's fair play. Like they must be busy people. They managed to write write up a paper, so that's wicked. Yeah. Um, no, I yeah, think but... that's a, that, another thing that should be done more. You know, people are doing this work, and a lot of the consultancy work involves doing pretty rigorous uh, population monitoring and stuff. Why not have it in a publishable, accessible format? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think. Uh, yeah, and maybe if there was more papers to be had out of it, then there'd be more impetus to do the long-term monitoring that's supposed to be done and often isn't because of money and whatever, I don't know. That's a whole mm. complicated issue. But, uh, yeah, they, yeah, these salamanders are bizarre. I kind of touched on it earlier. They produce babies in a really weird way. Um, they have options, essentially. So, as I mentioned earlier, they go to vernal pools, which are these pools where they all go, they congregate. They live on land for a lot of the year, and then they go to the ponds, and that's where they reproduce. Um, and they basically, the way they reproduce is that the male will drop a packet of sperm onto the bottom of the pond and the female will come along after him and kind of just like scoop it up with her cloaca and that's how they breed. Um, quite often in salamanders, there's a bit of like fisticuffs between the different males and often um, there'll be like a bit of a battle uh to try and sort of win out, win over the female. They do these kind of like weird dances. I'll talk about that in a minute more. But yeah, it really starts to get a bit confusing though because that's kind of a pretty standard means of animal mating, right? But it gets more complicated than that because it's actually possible for these unisexual salamanders, which are not, in fact, Jefferson salamanders, which is the, the salamanders we're talking about. They're completely separate. Mm. And they just contain some Jefferson genes. Yeah, they're um, separated. There's a recent paper by uh, 
Bayern Bogart, so one of the same guys we're talking about here, where there was a Robinson et al. paper previously that suggested they'd separated out 25,000 years ago, so pretty damn recently. And then they came in and redid all the analysis and, you know, beefed it up and did it on separate pop- a few more populations, I think it was, and suggested that they had separated in the early uh, Pliocene, so we're talking around 5 million years ago. Wow, that's a big difference. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> so that's what's that separating, the Jefferson salamanders or the unisexuals? That is separating unisexuals from wow. the rest of them. Um, that's bananas. That's ages ago. Yeah, I think they're close, most closely related. Well, this is actually looking at something slightly, slightly separate because I don't think they had Jefferson's in the analysis, but they had um, Abistona barbori. Barbori? Barbori. Yeah. Which are the most closely related to the unisexual uh, individuals. Right. Wow. So the unisexual method of survival is obviously not bad. It's working pretty well. Well, it's working so far. Yeah. So because the unisexuals are unisexual, they don't really have a gender, so they can't produce sperm packets. The trouble is, even their eggs require a sperm to be present to activate them. So basically, most times what will happen is the unisexuals will pick up a sperm packet and the sperm will swim along, touch the egg, and that's enough to trigger the egg to develop. And there's enough genes coming from the mother alone. All the genetics come from her, and that's how they produce a baby. But uh, in some cases, that's not the case. And they actually do something called kleptogenesis, which is where the sperm is actually used and they take some of the genetic material from the sperm and make the babies from that. And this is really confusing because these unisexuals don't just use Jefferson salamanders for this. They can also use blue spotted salamanders, uh, smallmouth salamanders, and occasionally even the eastern tiger salamander, which are all from the genus of Ambistoma. And what they can do is they can either use the sperm to activate the egg and keep all their own genes and ditch the sperm, or replace one of the genomes with genes from the sperm, or they can add an extra layer of chromosomes, uh, which is basically one entire set of genetic material. Um, And that gets confusing because that's really unfamiliar to us because in humans, you get a set of chromosomes from your mother and you get a set of chromosomes from your father. And we are diploid, so that's like two two sets. Uh, But in these salamanders, they can take in genes from all over the place and they can end up having three, four, or even five sets of chromosomes, which would be triploid. Yeah, yeah. Triploid, tetraploid, or polyploid. salamander. Yeah, it's just like, why do you need so many copies of the genes? It's just greedy. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, and I don't understand how they do that and how they can, you know, can they pick and choose from the genes that they contain? That's just bonkers. Um, yeah, but uh, that that's it really. The, the mating strategy is extremely unusual and the little mutants can have tons of genes, which uh, is obviously working well for them if they've been carrying on for that many million years. But anyway, what was the point of this paper? The point of this paper was to see how on earth these unisexual salamanders are doing in a place that may very well have lost uh, the donor species. 
and sort of investigating how the two interact and well just seeing that seeing that linkage uh, from a conservation perspective really yeah if you lose one how long will the other one last and that sort of stuff and see if you can use one as an indicator of the population of the other and so this jefferson salamander is endangered isn't it yeah um, and so it's not doing very well in ontario hence the protections we just discussed earlier on and basically like- suggested was it uh, habitat destruction habitat degradation uh death death on roads urban development you know cl- classic things hurting our amphibians across the world yeah yeah and so um they didn't actually manage to find any uh jefferson salamanders for the entire course of this study nope which is extremely alarming because so they actually six years this study yeah and they because they actually managed to get um you know they did a microsatellite analysis on the genetic uh, composition of the salamanders they were finding and they were very much uh jefferson containing animals so you know some of these uh some of these animals would if they had five copies of different chromosomes four of them would be from jefferson salamanders mm. um and so it's obvious that there is some reliance on these jefferson salamanders although they only need the sperm you know they can reproduce with the genes they've got if there's no sperm coming from those animals the unisexuals can't produce sperm themselves and so therefore you'd expect them to be in some kind of difficulty um and you know as it happens they are there are spotted salamanders which are ambistoma lateral uh sorry no maculatum ambistoma maculatum well the, wait there's 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 spotted and there's blue spotted and i think i got the names the wrong way around at the beginning yes no but you did correct yourself in the end did you i don't think i did ah okay well basically yeah there were spotted salamanders um but none of the ones they looked at contained spotted salamander genes yeah i think it was suggested that some other places have found that spotted can work as a donor but here it doesn't look like it was working right that's all and um yeah so what they concluded basically is that without these jefferson salamanders the unisexual salamanders are pretty much going to go kaput quite imminently well, yeah. I mean, one of the microsatellites were basically that some of the microsatellite results were basically saying that the ones that are there are old, and the variation basically showed that they had uh, sort of reproduced, you know, ages and ages ago. And when they did reproduce it, there wasn't much uh, like incorporation of any new genetic material. Yeah. So very, yeah, it, it wasn't a sign of a healthy growing population. It was a sort of stagnant and potentially soon to be declining population. Yeah, yeah. And what's also sort of key, we're talking about, you know, using these guys as a marker for Jeffersons. Just looking at the genetic makeup there is not enough to say that the Jeffersons were there. I think that's really the, the take-home conclusion from this paper, isn't it? It's, it's, you had the genes, but you look at when the last successful breeding occurred and it was probably a while ago and there's no more fresh Jeffersons to promote new uh, new unisexual salamanders. So yeah. it's all looking rather grim, <laughs> basically. 
Yeah. There is this there is this question in there. There's this thing called the Clanton effect, which was described by someone called Clanton in 1934. And this guy reckoned that uh, over time, unisexual salamanders would likely outcompete female salamanders um, of the species, mm. the sperm donor species. And so you'd kind of get this cycle of, you know, salamanders. Unisexuals would basically build up and up and up and up in numbers until the sperm donor species began to crash because the unisexuals are competing them. Yeah. But then because of the crash, the unisexuals would then be unable to reproduce. And so the normal species would come back. The ones that reproduce normally would re- reappear over time. But uh, the authors kind of didn't think that was happening in this case because... Um, Jefferson salamanders can distinguish between their like conspecific females that are other Jefferson salamanders and unisexuals, and they actually prefer non-Jefferson salamander. They 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 prefer Jefferson salamander females. So it seems unlikely that they would give the unisexuals that level of preferential treatment to where they could become extinct. But you know, well, the added knows. thing was that. They suggested that the actual conditions there in those ponds were not bad for Jeffersons or something. Like it, it was because we had the spotted salamanders there. That there should be Jeffersons there, and there are other things playing into why they're they're losing out. So it shouldn't be. It shouldn't just be a case of them just disappearing because there should still be recruitment from other ponds nearby or something like that. There's, there's something wider going on. It's not just these ponds and the ponds connected to and the ponds connected to. Like, it feels like a an isolation problem or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do say in their sort of impacts, their sort of conservation impacts section that... Um, roads are a real threat to these salamanders and yeah yeah there's a network of sort of farm properties agricultural lands and woodlands um so you know it's not it's not a hugely urban environment but an urban environment is kind of creeping in um agriculture obviously probably not ideal for these salamanders because farmers are going to clear their fields there's not going to be the um there's not going to be the sort of like rotting logs and vegetation and rocks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that they rely on. Well, you have all sorts of fertilizers and uh, fertilizers and chemicals in your. Yeah. So slightly off topic, but do you remember we talked about the crocodilians in the battle tank a couple of weeks ago? Yes, the battle crocs. Yeah. Well, I found a salamander version of the Thunderdome. I suppose it should have been combat crocodile, shouldn't it? And then. Uh... <laughs> yeah. I found another one, this time with salamanders. Um, and the paper we're about to discuss also has a bit of combat, but this other one made me laugh. Salamander standoffs. Yeah. Uh, this one's called... The species was Ambistoma talpoidium, uh, which is confusingly called the mole salamander as a common name, despite the fact they're all mole salamanders. That's like that's like <laughs> discovering Excellent. a new species of dolphin and just calling it dolphin. <laughs> dolphin, dolphin. <laughs> Um, but yeah, these are from Central and Eastern US, the mole salamander. Um, and we were talking earlier about how the males deposit their sperm packets and the females move over and pick them up, you know, like yep. that's kind of, some kind of like weird sexual postal service. And the males 
were put into trios and had a female introduced to them. Uh, and the males just had a wicked battle over the one female that had been put in. And uh, mostly it was just a bit of a sort of lighthearted nudging. But um, sometimes they would go as far as like a full on headbutt and stuff. Uh, and <laughs> that's. Salamanders. Yeah, and that's. I, I just find it hilarious. They've just got these like blunt heads to think of them battling. But uh, yeah, unsurprisingly, um, the males which were by themselves had better mating success. Uh, which seems quite obvious, really. But he's the first person to test this. This was all the way back in 1998, Verilyn Krenz. Um, Wait, as in the males that were put in with a female that didn't have to battle? Yeah, they did better. Okay. Yeah, well, it's all the battling. It's going to wear these poor little salamanders out, isn't it? (laughs) It is, yeah. And obviously, because the females, you know, basically the males go along and they do this kind of weird jerky dance... Um, and then they just like plonk a sperm packet on the floor and then the females this is all happening underwater of course and then the females come along and they're you know they're trying to pick them up so one of the strategies the males would use is to kind of like swim in from the side and torpedo the male that was (laughs) trying to drop the sperm packet or sometimes they're just like nudging in the way of the female and trying trying like push her off course Um, but yeah so it's underwater American football yeah basically yeah Nice. But but with no sort of beginning or end. It's just, they're just <laughs> battling until the battling's done. There's no whistle in nature. There's no whistle. No. There's no timeouts. That's the raw brutality of it. Yeah. Oh, poor salamanders. It's exhausting to even consider. And so from one salamander battle to another, should we move on to the second paper? Yeah, I think so. Um, do we want to just give a quick roundup of that paper which was essentially there are salamanders that unisexual salamanders that need to basically steal sperm from other salamanders Um, that salamander species that they steal from has disappeared from the ponds and is looking like the unisexual salamanders are failing to reproduce and their future is looking bleak that's basically the long and short of it yeah well rounded up yeah but at the same time, introduce a few Jeffersons, maybe we, you know, maybe that'll fix it. It's tough though, isn't it? Because unless you can unpick exactly what has, had, has led to the decline of the Jeffersons, if it's humans, then yeah, go and sprinkle some Jeffersons around and about. But mm. otherwise... Well, you've mm. still got to fix the problem if it is humans, because what's to stop the population doing the same thing again? Very true. And it just being a sink. Yeah, very true. So, uh, should we move on? Yes. Okie dokie. So we, the second one is by Rita, Anthony, and Hickerson. Territorial behavior and ecological divergence in a polymorphic salamander. Published in 2014 in Copea. Yeah, territorial salamanders. We were talking about salamander battles. Now we have salamander territorial battles. Mm. It's funny to think of a salamander having a sense of its own space. Yes. I don't know. There's probably quite a lot going on in those little salamander mines. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what species are we talking about? The red-backed salamander, Plethodon cinereus. Hmm. Terrestrial, polymorphic species living in the moist forest floor of the east of eastern North America. Um, doesn't have any lungs. That's weird. 
Yeah, so polymorphic, meaning multicolored, or coming in different colors more accurately, I suppose. Yeah. Or patterns, yeah. even. Multiple um, morphs. So what we have are striped and unstriped morphs. And really, this paper's getting at, so we've got these striped and unstriped morphs. Are they diverging? Are they making use of different niches? And is there some sort of assortative mating going on, pushing these guys in two separate directions, perhaps to one day become their own species? That's good. That's the, yeah, that's the long and short of it, isn't it? The crux yeah. is, are they just different colours or are they trying to sneak away from each other genetically and become a brand new thing? Mm. It's funny, you only really hear the word assortment when you're talking about sweets or polymorphism. Those are the only times it comes up in my life. Or, yes, you do, yes, okay. I had a third example with like how computers sort things, right? Where you have different assortive methods of sorting lists. Yeah, I suppose but, you do. Like, but that's uh, a boring example and we'd rather talk about sweets. Yeah. I want to talk about sweets, you want to talk about metadata. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, nerd. <laughs> We're not doing that again. Right. So uh, <laughs> So yeah, like you say. Uh, essentially, previous work has shown that, that, yeah, so we should probably say what the different ones look like. There's striped ones and non-striped ones. Mm, I said that. Did you? Well, I'll say it again. And the striped Tell me, males... these, these stripes, where do they go? How do they look? Are they tiger stripes or are they dorsal <laughs> along the back stripes? Well, the thing you've got to remember is some are striped and some are not. Oh. Uh, what the hell so do they even... striped ones, they don't have any stripes, right? What are they called? Plethodon? Cinerius. <laughs> <laughs> Plethodon, yeah. <laughs> well, the ones which are striped, as you might expect, you know, they're, they're a kind of ruddy brown. Um, some are a bit more yellow. And they've got a kind of an orangey stripe running down the back with, like, dappled brown sides... Um, they've got very long bodies and small legs. That's how I'd describe them. Excellent. And I presume that the unstriped ones are the same, but lacking the stripe. Yeah, and they're a bit sort of, they're just sort of... Smaller. They are slightly smaller, yeah, although you wouldn't know that from the photos. Um, and they're also kind of, they're just a dark colour with lighter speckling. Mm. They've got very sticky out eyes. The eyes stand away from the head kind of makes them look like a cartoon animal in, in a bit of a way yes and That's they have no... slightly it looks like they have slightly different niches and things going on so they'll have a slightly narrower prey base that seems to be of lower value like lower nutritional value um, and seem to be able to deal with warmer and drier conditions although I did this is a little the bit... unstriped ones the unstriped ones yeah so there's a they they cited a whole bunch of papers that back that up, but they also had one. They said sort of, but see this other one. So naturally, I gravitated towards the one that countered what the whole paper was about, because you know just been a natural contrarian, and it sort of looks like there are differences in metabolic rate between striped and unstriped, but that it's not particularly consistent across populations or between populations right 
Um, so it doesn't really look like the niches, like separate niches from uh, based on thermal conditions actually exist. Or at least this paper doesn't say so. Um, but there is something going on there between colomorph and thermal niche. So there's a relationship, but it's just not consistent. Right. Interesting. Yeah, so yeah. it could be that... Um... Oh, there's just, I mean, it's possible that these things are occurring in different ways all across, you know, different scales. So like on a absolutely on a regional scale, it could be that there's myriad different ones where certain striped salamanders, because presumably, I mean, these salamanders, they can walk a little way, but some of these populations must be getting a little bit isolated. So it could be that there's striped populations which are pros at staying out in the dry. You know, they're not phased about being a lungless. They'll sit and... Mm. Obviously, to a degree, but then other places which are, you know, not genetically mixing with those ones, the salamanders might be significantly less prone to sitting out in the sun. Obviously, they won't actually sit out in the sun, but they might just be less prone to desiccating or more prone to desiccating, depending on the region they're in. That makes a lot of yeah. sense. Or, or throwing predator density or something like that that changes pressure of how long you can be out and about compared to hiding mm. under things. Or that's you know, true. Ma- you name it, parasite burden. Yeah. <laughs> there are so perhaps, many things that could could modify yeah the so differences perhaps and the, both affect different colors differently yeah so perhaps if you know hypothetically speaking if the striped ones had a greater kind of behavioral plasticity um but those ones that were willing to hang around in the dry areas were getting eaten by the particular kind of mole well this they is wouldn't the other thing the, the, very long. the unstriped guys have more frequent tail breakages Presumably due to interactions with predators, as a direct quote. Interesting. So that might be a product of them being out in the warmer and drier conditions and less covered areas, as we'll get into in the paper. Mm. Or just that maybe they're easier to get eaten. I, I don't know. Maybe they stand out more, less cryptic. Mm. Yeah. Either way. Yeah. Interesting so, um... situation. Yeah, so another one of the things that they'd seen in previous studies is that striped males have access to larger and therefore presumably more fecund females because, Mm. you know, we assume that bigger females lay more eggs. Um, And the idea behind this paper was that they thought this pattern would emerge because the striped males were more territorial than the non-striped males. Um, Yes, and generally more aggressive and more just like... Yeah, put up with anything. They're basically just the arseholes of the salamander world. They're the aggy yeah. ones, big salamander uh, bullies. Yeah, and so the prediction was that that would manifest itself in the striped salamanders being more territorial, being found in the same places more often, um, and be more aggressive to other salamanders when they came mm. across them. Yeah. So what they did. A whole bunch of cover, artificial cover items across the forest floor in uh, Ohio and went and checked them and, you know, recorded which salamanders were there and then also did a whole bunch of lab stuff where they had some salamanders, you know, in their little containers and then introduced an intruder into their little territory and recorded the behaviours and who won these little bouts. Yeah, the salamanders were all put in individual little tubes, weren't they, with moist paper. Um, And that was their little zone. That was their kind of habitat for the time being. And then they'd leave them in there for a little while. And then eventually when they kind of thought it had been long enough that the salamanders were 
assuming that tube was their territory, they'd put a different salamander in there and see how they'd react. Yes, and then they used a paper towel of yeah. the same length and width of the <laughs> resident as a control, which I really liked. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'd love, I'd love it if they'd made a small origami salamander. Um, well, no, because that wouldn't really be a control, would it? Because they might consider it a salamander that was just really, really naff at fighting. <laughs> and also, if you gave the salamander the control first, it might bump up his ego too much. Because you're like, man, that floppy little salamander didn't stand a chance against me. He didn't have just muscles or bones. Melted. Melted yeah. under pressure. <laughs> and that would therefore, you know, that would influence the later on results, which would be negative. So, uh, so, what do they find? They found that the, as they expected, uh, the striped salamanders were uh, more aggressive in the yes. laboratory studies. Um, so, when and they were the residents of the tube, they were more aggressive and much less often submissive than the unstriped ones. So, submissive behavior is just kind of cowering in the corner and just not really mm-hmm. wanting to go, not really wanting a battle at all. Um, yeah. Uh, in terms and- of, like, they, they did a whole bunch of tests and comparisons between behaviors um, and... Uh, time spent in retreat and things like that a lot of them were found to be statistically insignificant and didn't seem to play a bigger role the aggression stuff did that was one of the statistically significant differences between the striped and the unstriped um along with the was it looking towards for um striped residents was significantly different which is another proxy for like some level of aggression by you know, being very alert and aware of an intruder. Um, and I think largely other stuff was found not to be a big deal. Yeah. R- right? Yeah. They're the two main highlights. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, it is really interesting to think that these stripy salamanders are more territorial and aggressive than their non-striped counterparts i think it's really interesting to me to think about why that would be like is it possible that the genes that control for color in some way linked to genes that control behaviors because you do see that yeah in, yeah you see, see that you in see, dogs yeah you do you see that in dogs you see that in captive snakes as well um where at least i mean i haven't actually seen any like em- empirical studies of it but at least uh, in my experience, if you've got like al- albino boa constrictors, always seem to be like really soppy and tame. Maybe that's stupid. I don't know, but yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. It's kind of like, yeah, certainly with dogs, it's a level of domestication, isn't it? And if they look a certain oh, yeah. way, they're going to act a certain think, way. Yeah, less of color, but yeah, exactly, more of a certain look. And it's a look that seems to be wasn't there's that massive wasn't there that massive Soviet era study on foxes. Well, they tried to do exactly the same, and the more they they basically went two ways. They did try to get hyper aggressive foxes and hyper docile foxes, and the docile ones started to look more and more sort of domestic dog like as it went. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Fascinating I stuff. Completely forget who did that, and 
Mate, I didn't read the paper. I read a Nat Geo article about it, I think. I feel like it... Yeah, I feel like I've just seen a documentary about it more than anything. Mm, yeah. Well, either way. Um, yeah, so a really cool example of how it's possible that multiple colour patterns of salamanders are slowly becoming different species based on their behaviour and uh, kind of subtle niche separation. Yeah, sorry, I was I was, I was looking up uh, fox stuff. Um, fox stuff. But uh, they've got fur, so we'll just leave them alone. Yeah. They're not slimy I mean, enough for this episode. <laughs> what do you think you're doing, man? We went as far as hagfish. That's as far away from her petafauna as we're going. Okay. 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 So, I think that just nicely rounds up that paper. Well, I just wanted a couple of things. Um, there are instances <laughs> of males and females cooperating in co-defense of high-quality territories. Whoa, teaming up. Yeah. Um, nope, actually, that's it. Hmm. That was the last thing, because we've talked about how they might be better suited to certain microclimates or microhabitats, be that as a product of being forced out or... Or whatever, you know, that is just plasticity because they're forced into those uh, alternative habitats. Yeah. And actually, there wasn't, no, there's a completely separate thing. If you want to do a summary of the paper quick, and then I'll do my separate thing commenting on this paper. I think I just did do a summary. So you yeah. just crack on. Yeah. Okay. Um, they use a pie chart. Um,. I didn't think that was particularly good practice anymore. And I was like, I swear, that's... What? Pie charts? I thought everybody agreed that pie charts weren't good for people's brains. And yeah, it's too confusing. It makes you think of pie, and it's not easy after that. Yeah, suddenly I'm thinking of pie. But hmm. actually, it is, it is a thing that... It is accepted that pie charts are not as... Uh, uh, efficient, I suppose, in getting information across to people. Yeah, because you've got the whole like spatial element of where it's positioned around the wheel. Our brain yeah. kind of skews stuff like that. We don't get an honest representation. It's okay as like a casual thing, but in a paper, you kind of want better, don't you? Well, this is what sort of surprised me was I was they're sort of bar charts too, with their strange arrows pointing direction and showing significance. I just thought the figures were a little bit strange with this one. That just made me want to read a little bit more to make sure that I wasn't just going mad and it was a little bit strange and um, it led me to a paper that was published in the Journal of American Statistics the Journal the Journal of the American Statistical Association because that's a journal that everybody wants to sit down and read and <laughs> it sounds boring but it has a badass crest of an eagle and two snakes so what kind of snakes? Um, they appear to be some sort of black snake with a pale head. Um, yeah, so basically this was a paper by Cleveland and McGill. And it's looking at graphical perceptions, as they phrase it. And basically they present a hierarchy of ways people see things. So if you've got a graph that you want to produce, you, t you want to pick things higher up that hierarchy because they're simpler and easier to read than things lower down, which requires more sort of effort to understand. And pie charts do not beat out things like bar charts and along those lines. And it, it, it's all just talking about uh, cutting out 
complexity and dimensions where you can to lead people to see the patterns in the data in a more clearer, more efficient way. And it's not a bad paper, it's quite long, but it's something that, I don't know, I, I feel like as people, you know, scientists have to be quite multidisciplinary with what they're dealing with, don't they? They have to deal with a lot of writing, a lot of statistics, and also visual ways of communicating, and also giving presentations and all sorts of things. You've got to deal, I mean, that's a lot of, that's a really wide skill set. And so I feel like papers like this, drawing attention to how they can be done better, are seriously valuable. And I just wanted to bring it up. Yeah, sometimes you just, when you're reading a paper, you kind of just automatically assume, or at least I have, that because it's published, it's, you know, of a extremely high quality. And I'm not suggesting these papers aren't, but it's always good to you know, keep the keep your head on of critically analysing everything because, you know, everything could be improved in some way, I would imagine. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because people aren't formally trained in aspects of, of design and stuff. I mean, for goodness sake, there's a multi-billion dollar industry on, you know, dealing with adverts and how to quickly convey information to people in certain ways. Yeah. And when there's that much effort going into it, you know, people have learnt a lot of how to cut corners and uh, getting a lot of information across quickly in a figure can be oh, it can be fantastic and you know, make or break a paper. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So I think on that statistical analysis note <laughs> Yes. We should move on to our uh Well I New think species it's... of salamander. Yeah, I think it's fair to say this is the most famous segment regarding a new species of herpetophile, herpetofauna, in the world, on any podcast. Maybe. Um, I wouldn't want to make that claim. I'm going to make it. This is the most famous... I'm distancing myself from this claim. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most famous herpetofauna-related new species announcement that comes bi-weekly of any podcast in the world. In English. In English. We'll caveat that with in English because obviously I don't, you know, I don't speak all the languages. So uh, could be could be one sneaking in somewhere else. Perhaps there's a perhaps there's a German language podcast that who knows. Anyway, mm. so the paper we carefully selected for the species of bi-week this week, which actually underwent quite a lot of deliberation, didn't it? Because uh, there was quite a few recently discovered salamanders. Uh, but we ine- in- eventually settled on McCraney and Rovito 2014, new species of salamander, that's why we're here, Chordata plethodon today, Cryptotitron, Cryptotriton, from Quebrada, Cataguana, Francisco Morazan, Honduras, with comments on the taxonomic status of Cryptotitron wackii. Oh, you know, Zootaxa, with their catchy names. Yeah, literally that. Whoo, that was a bit of an, a bit of an epic. So yeah, Zootaxa they do really nice papers. Aside from the long morphological character descriptions, which are inevitable, and the kind of weighty, uh, they're useful. Yeah, just DN- not fun DNA to read unless yeah. you want to know how far the eyelid is from the nostril in certain salamanders. Well, I mean, that's what gets me up in the mornings. It's what puts me to bed. 
<laughs> so, uh, yeah, this salamander, the it's from the genus Cryptotyte. Really hard to say that combination of T's and R's. It's not the Cryptotitron though. It's Cryptotriton. Cryptotriton. Yeah. Yes. That's what I keep saying. Cryptotriton. Yeah. It's um. Yes. Prior to this species, there was six. Um, they're small and they kind of occur in montane habitats from northern Chiapas, Mexico, to northwestern Honduras. So they're a Central American genus. Um, and individuals of these kind of six existing ones have always proved difficult to find. They're sneaky. They're very sneaky. And uh, three of those six species, there's only actually ever been five specimens found, which is very little. Well, let's hope that those five don't represent the entire population. Because <laughs> now they're in jars. Because that, oh, that'd be embarrassing for taxonomists, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. It would be. It'd be terrible. Um... But we don't want to disparage taxonomists, though. We've done enough of that on the programme. Um, <laughs> no, you've done enough of that on the programme. <laughs> no, you've done it, Ben. You've said things about taxonomists. I don't say anything about them. I love them. Uh, I'm only joking. It's just a funny running joke. Uh, anyway, during June 2013, it says here, one of us, presumably that's one of the authors. I like that, first person. Makes me, you know, third, or is it third person? Third person, one of us. Anyway, they collected this new salamander um, and they thought, that's not one we know about. And they're in a cloud forest near north central Honduras, um, 125 kilometres south southeast of the nearest known locality for any of these species. And so it was pretty much a given that this was a new one. And that's what they're describing in this paper. Um, the name they've given this animal is Cryptotriton necopinus. Necopinus. Yes, AKA. the Latin adjective for unexpected. Yeah, which is great. Um, but they also, the common name is the Cataguana hidden salamander, which... <laughs> oh, that's quite fun. Yeah, it is. Or AKA Salamandra Escondida de Cataguana. Nice. That was Spanish. Oh. <laughs> um, go on. <laughs> I actually cannot but uh, yeah if you're interested to know it's easy to tell the difference between it and C. nasalis and C. wackii uh, which are its nearest known neighbours because its nostril opening on the inside is a much paler colour than the head nearby which in the photos you can actually see it's got really bizarrely light coloured inner nostrils yeah we haven't even described what this little guy looks like that's pretty much it. Do people want He's, to hear about it beyond the nostrils, or is it sort of his nostrils well, enough? I mean, I don't know. I feel like people are probably more than satisfied of a detailed <laughs> description of nostril colour, but I feel like maybe a cursory description is... is, is, is it has... Know, we've got well, to. Cursory is our speciality, so it has <laughs> it has small legs. A very, has a head. It has a head, yeah. The head's there. The head's connected to the body. By some sort of uh, neck or... Yeah, the neck is... System chunk- of vertebrate bones. The tail can only be described as... Phenomenal. Yeah, nominal and long and slender. <laughs> uh, <laughs> clearly connected to the body via some spinal integument. Uh, yeah. Oh, and a close-up of the head reveals very light-coloured nostrils. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing nostrils. Larger than you'd expect for a salamander of this size. 
Yes. The so it's salamander. a beautiful, beautiful brownie, shiny brownie, goldy colour with a sort of dorsal, mid-dorsal stripe that's slightly brighter, nice deep orange, tails a much richer, yellowy orange, sort of fiery, like a burnt, embery sort of salamander is how I would describe the coloration. Like a Balrog's thumb. Like a Balrog's thumb. Yes. It's very cool, actually. And the, the legs are red and speckled, and the, the toes, the ends of the toes are red, which is cool. It's a really yeah, cool... Quite cute. Uh, yeah, it's actually a very handsome creature. Um, and, How big uh, are we talking? 26 uh, of 26 millimeters. millimeters. Yeah. Whoa, that's tiny! Well, you Makes see, you he's p- pictured on a, on a fern Well, it's farm. the tropics, mate. I just assumed that was a big leaf. Oh, yeah, I suppose it could. Yeah. That's yeah, insanely like small. Eagle could come down and sit next to him. He'd be like, "Oh, I'm just sitting on a big fern." That's incredible. So, um, no wonder they didn't spot them for so long. They're tiny. Hmm. I'm probably scurrying around in leaf litter. Yeah. Although well, not. This they, one was they, found one meter on above the ground, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, and and the leaf it was on was a meter above the ground, but also three meters from the actual body of the tree. Hmm. Um, little semi-arboreal salamanders yeah and I like this salamander because it makes short jerky movements (laughs) it does look like a bit of a jerk (laughs) yeah Um, you can tell by the nostrils yeah well I wonder what it was doing on that leaf very unusual that's all we know about it is it was found on a leaf so (laughs) maybe it got lost yeah it could be it literally could be that you've only found one it could be a coincidence couldn't it it's like yeah. if you found if you found a uh, if you found a tortoise that had fallen in a pond and it was the first one, you'd be like, "Oh, it's a turtle." <laughs> <laughs> it walks on the bottom of the pond. <laughs> <Visions>. Yeah. <laughs> also, it seems to be drowning. Yeah, testudine maladaptatus or whatever. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, cool little uh, newt. <laughs> it's not a newt. It's a salamander. But yeah, yes. no lungs on this one as, again. No, well, that's pretty much overrated at this point. Mental that it's living on that leaf without lungs. The air must be really humid. It does say it rained the previous night, so... Yes, well, this is the thing, is you just don't know how its little behaviour on that leaf, you know, is representative of its actual behaviour over its, its lifetime, do we? No, that's true, yeah. Need to get some radio transmitters in them. Start what following you... them. I don't think Hollow Hill make anything as small as that. <laughs> a little yet. backpack. Get a little backpack on it. Oh, a little salamander backpack. Yeah, people have definitely done that. I mean, the uh, alternative is to tie a tiny piece of string, you know, just around the sort of pelvis area, or whatever salamanders have as an equivalent of a pelvis, and then uh, follow that along. Yeah. That'll do it. Old school. Yeah. <laughs> or just ask the salamander to drop crumbs of bread everywhere it goes and then just follow those. You can't give a salamander bread. It will dry out his skin. Uh, yeah, that's true. It's very irresponsible. Mm, that is, yeah. Sorry I said that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I reckon that neatly ties up our new salamander. What was the common name of it again? Ah, oh, Cataguana Hidden Salamander. So I think we're there. Uh, 
I just wanted to do a few shout outs because uh, I said I would. So, <laughs> oh, what have you done? What have you done? <laughs> you and your social media <laughs> antics. Oh, uh, well, anyway, uh, Joseph Corley, who is at the University of Vienna doing a PhD on fossil fishes. That's pretty cool. Thanks fossil for listening. Fossil fishes? Yeah, it's fun to That's say a as lot well. Of fish. Yeah, he specializes in, uh, I don't even know how you say it, pycnodonts. Oh, not hagfish then. Yeah, but he's a paleoecologist, which is awesome. Yeah, man. You can just make it up. So, uh... (laughs) (laughs) That's going to get some (laughs) flack. No. Mate, anyone who's doing a PhD in fossil fishes has got a wicked sense of humor, you guarantee it. So, next up, Sisyphus, uh, someone called Scaly Tails, Shilly. Uh, C. Krusninski, thanks for listening. Uh, Darren Nash, Tetsu Man, uh, Dormouse Daughter, Giles to Start, Berliner, and oh, the American Society of Ichthyologists and Herpetologists. Thank you very much. That's really cool. Everyone should follow. The guys who are responsible for Copaia. Oh, wow. Perfect. That's all come full circle then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's actually quite nice having a Copaya article in here. That's all oh, that's I would love to go, unplanned. I would love to go to their um meeting. The yes. joint ichthyologists and herpetologists, uh but it's always in America, isn't it? It's... Well, it is the American society, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know. You pedant. Right. So uh <laughs> <laughs> well, you're just gonna have to study an American species, aren't you? Yeah, maybe. Or maybe well we'll do a live podcast if they send us there. How about that? That sounds fair. Yeah, I think that's quite a big ask, mate. Yeah, I know. I mean, between no. getting me and you there, that's a lot of <laughs> that's a lot of dollar to lay out. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, any other business? Anything else that needs addressing? Anything you want any, to get off your chest? You got anything? Any other business? Yeah. No, I feel like I feel that's that's pretty much it. I think um, apologies if if things are less detailed and descriptive and in depth than previous episodes. It's just unbelievable workloads. <laughs> yeah, I was woefully um, underprepared for this. Yeah, uh, but otherwise, you know. Yeah, so I would expect there's going to be some corrections for this one. And if there are, get in touch with us. You can do that on Facebook, facebook.com slash herphighlights. You can email us, herphighlights at gmail.com. Or we have Twitter at herphighlights. Um... Yeah, get in touch with us with anything you want to do. Questions, suggestions for episodes. We've um, we've done episodes that have been suggested in the past, and we will do them again. We uh, we yeah. If there's something you want yes. to hear more about, even if it's like explicit papers that you're interested in, then uh, we'll have a chat about them. Well, unless the paper's really boring and yeah. um, poorly written and yeah, twenty five have- years old. We have a really savage cutthroat and um, indiscriminate sort of uh, selection <laughs> selection procedure, which is just depends, largely random. <laughs> largely random depends entirely on how much sleep Ben's had. Um, what you know, what kind of a mood I'm in. So yeah, don't be offended. You might not hear back. Now you will hear back. You'll get a response for sure. Can I can I make a suggestion for a future episode? No, you don't get an opinion, Ben. <laughs> oh, man. Can't we just do one on things that I'm reading because I need to read them anyway? Yeah, but we don't. you don't want to div- reveal that to the listeners. It will ruin the mystery of it. 
Well, yeah, but that's all I'm saying. What are you reading about at the moment, then? Um, something that we won't do. How about that? How about how about I give I give people a really cool paper to read that has nothing to do with herbs? Yeah, go on. Um, I suppose it does have something to do with herbs because everything needs protecting. Is it open access? Uh, no, it's from the Journal of Applied Ecology. Okay. And it's all about how community outreach can alleviate poaching pressure in uh, wildlife by uh, Robert Steinmetz et al. from 2014. And it's rather excellent. Cool. And there's a rather great like counter to it by St. John et al. in 2014 as well. And the two of them combined are excellent reading. Sweet. I love it when there's a rebuttal. Well, it's a very nice rebuttal. It was ba- it's basically a very gentle reminder to uh, sort of biologists and natural scientists that social science has its own um, sort of set of rules to play by and you should probably listen to them yeah. and take them into full account when you're designing your studies. Yeah. So uh, I just wanted to quickly mention uh, there's a paper... That's not a paper. It's an article which came out today. It, uh, on earther.com and it's all about bee sal uh, which is the kind of chytrid of salamanders so it's the same genus of uh, fungus but but it's it infects effects salamanders rather than frogs uh, obviously chytrid we've talked about at length it's really really damaging the same is true of bee sal it's completely eviscerated uh, many European populations of salamanders and it all came over in the post from Vietnam because people had salamanders as pets and now someone called Reed Harris who is an emeritus professor at James Madison University and he's also the director of uh, the Amphibian Survival Alliance has suggested that all salamanders should be banned from being imported into the United States to defend this massive biodiversity that we've been talking about just now um he likens the situation to the highlands of Panama where numerous species went extinct uh, or declined because of uh, chytrid, which is an interesting perspective. Um, well, that seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? On the one hand, it does, yeah. Um, but then, I don't know, because any time you try and completely outlaw anything, it doesn't, it doesn't work. People are predetermined beasts and they tend to do what they please regardless of laws so it might I don't know whether or not it would be more efficient to have some kind of control uh, because otherwise pushing things underground is generally considered quite bad but yeah, yeah on the face no, of it in that sense it is maybe you need just really stringent like special salamander border patrol yeah which you know there's not a lot of money for um, yeah but, no one's going to pay for that but yeah, I mean, Prohibition didn't go too well. We're all still getting wasted every weekend, so... Yeah, but at the same time, we didn't live in the States, so largely irrelevant. Prohibition of drugs in the UK isn't working, is it? Well, there you go. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> it's the two sides of the same coin, but there you go. Uh, yeah, I'm happy now. <laughs> uh, good. You, uh, I'm happy if you're happy, so that's good. So, uh, shall we call it? I think so. I think that's Before. everything. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, um, thank you very much for listening and we will speak to you in two weeks time. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys.
They don't look like that. The macular ones are covered in spots. Oh. 